Screen Time with John Fardy. This is News Talk. Hello and welcome to Screen Time. I'm John Fardy and this is News Talk's TV and movie show. This week on the show, the makers of the Netflix series American Nightmare talk about how to make compelling true crime drama without sensationalising trauma. The director of a new Irish horror movie, Double Blind, on making lockdown scary. Plus, we view the deeply satirical and funny American fiction, which has picked up a slew of Oscar nominations. I'm open on Twitter, John underscore Farty, or you can email me screentime at newstalk.com. The show is available as a podcast every Friday at 5pm on newstalk.com or the Newstalk app powered by Go Loud, and it's on the radio every Saturday at 6pm here on News Talk. Good weekend to you all. I hope you're doing well. And I want to really quickly get it out of the way. Regular listeners know I'm a massive Billy Joel fan and I mentioned last week he had a new song out and indeed it landed this very week on Thursday. Turn the lights back on. And I think it's great. Classic Billy Joel. So if you're into that, it's great. Have a listen to it. You can kind of hear his three divorces in the lyrics. Uh, He's now married for the fourth time. It's a song of kind of regret and bruised romance, I'd suggest. I I loved it, but I'm very biased. But anyway, this is a movie show. And talking of music within the confines of a movie and TV show, take a listen to this. Are you swaying there, folks? All the hands together, down the back especially. That, of course, is We Are the World. Why am I playing that? Well, there is a pretty entertaining new documentary on Netflix called The Greatest Night in Pop. If you're a regular Netflix viewer, you've probably seen this pop up. This tells the story of the making of We Are the World when all these huge 1980s stars in America came together on one night and recorded We Are the World. And this tells, it's kind of fascinating story of Lionel Richie, Harry Belafonte, Quincy Jones and Michael Jackson coming up and conceiving of this song and getting it turned around in one night after the American Music Awards. And it details getting them all in one room and all that involved and was Springsteen in, was Prince in, we've just heard this guy's out. They eventually all come together And the cameras were all there. And you see this raggle-taggle of, you know, the biggest stars of the 80s. Bob Dylan, Bruce Springsteen, Tina Turner, the aforementioned Billy Joel, Paul Simon, Huey Lewis. They're all there. And some mad things happen. Like Bob Dylan is just a fish out of water and it looks terrified at being there and possibly having to sing. One of the singers being a slightly drunk, the song not really being finished in time and still working out how it's all going to play together. Lionel Richie having to host the American Music Awards and then go and do this on the QT. Bruce Springsteen showing up just in a car by himself without any fanfare. Prince not showing up and Sheila E feeling like she was only there because they wanted Prince to be there. It's a great 
entertaining watch. I mean, it's self-congratulatory in some ways, all these stars coming together to feed the poor and starving in Africa. But it's a it's a very entertaining watch. I mean, on a personal level, I do struggle with Michael Jackson these days. And, and watching him, I, I have a hard time with. If you've ever seen the documentary Leaving Neverland, you might feel the same way. Uh, I found that to be a thoroughly convincing testimony of, of two young boys who are now deeply troubled men by what they claim what is alleged happened at Michael Jackson's hands. That's just a personal thing. Some people are fine with Michael Jackson. Some radio stations don't play him anymore. So depending on where you sit, you will or won't want to see Michael Jackson in this. Outside of that, this is still a very entertaining pop culture watch about Titanic musical stars of the 80s being in one room and uh, trying to make a song. And it, it, it's a great watch, I have to say. So The Greatest Night in Pop, uh, a real short, entertaining watch at just an hour and a half, now streaming on Netflix. Now, in the cinema this week, we will be reviewing American fiction later in the show, but I want to quickly mention Migration, which is an animated movie, one firmly for kids, but you might get something out of this. It's about a family of ducks, mallards, if I'm not mistaken, voiced by an overprotective dad, the comedian and actor. He was in the, the big sick Kamal Nanjani and he's talked into flying to Jamaica by his children, the ducks, the duck kids. And along the way, they get into all sorts of scrapes, particularly when they land in New York by accident and come up against some scary pigeons. Brilliant voice cast. David Mitchell is in there. Elizabeth Banks, Aquafina. I found this really pleasant. We took the kids, it's a couple of weeks ago at this stage, it was a screening and they really enjoyed it, particularly my five-year-old, apart from a scary bit with a snail. And I and my wife really sat back and smiled. The animation is gorgeous as well. It's it's co-written by the man behind the White Lotus, uh, Mike White. So I, I don't know if that has any bearing on it. He's, he's a good scriptwriter, And I, I really enjoyed this. And incidentally, I saw it in movies at the square the square in Tallet, which I don't think I'd been in in years. And the screen we were in had these glorious couches, uh, two-seater couches. It was absolutely beautiful. It was like being in your front room. And my children absolutely loved them. So uh, kudos to movies at the square for the most comfortable chairs I've come across in a cinema in a very long time. But more importantly, Migration, a nice watch for you and the family if you're thinking of heading out over the bank holiday weekend. It is a bank holiday weekend. You forget that, or I certainly did, you know, because it's new. We're not used to this. So uh, if you want to go to the cinema on Monday with the kids, migration is well worth it. Get in touch with me if you want. John underscore Fardy is my Twitter handle, or you can email me screentime at newstalk.com. Now, last week on the show, I mentioned American Nightmare. It's a true crime television series directed by Bernadette Higgins and Felicity Morris. The series covers the March 2015 kidnapping of Denise Huskins or Denise Huskins from her home she shared with her boyfriend Aaron Quinn in Vallejo in California. The Vallejo Police Department and the FBI assumed the kidnapping was a hoax staged by Huskins and Quinn and Huskins was labelled the real gone girl by the media but a lot more was to follow. I gave it a very good review last week and told you you should definitely watch it and I'm awfully glad I did because I'm joined now by Bernadette Higgins and Felicity Morris, the people who made it. Hi guys, how are you? Hello, very well, thanks. How are you? 
Very well. So, Bernie, if I can start with you, just I suppose the obvious place to start is where, where did it start for you guys? Did you hear about this case? Was it always in your mind or did someone get in touch with you or what was the genesis? Well, for us, it was a case of very fortunate timing, to be honest with you, because um, it was just after the release of uh, the Tinder Swindler that it was brought to us by Raw, who are the same production company that we made the Tinder Swindler with. Um, so they'd actually been working hard on getting access to Denise and Aaron for the previous two years. Okay. And then it was kind of just the uh, lucky for us that access came in just as we were starting to look for our next project. Um, yeah. and, it, and it was brought to us. So I guess that's what happens when after the success of the Tinder Swindler, people figure you're capable storytellers. And Felicity, just on that then, I mean, Denise and Aaron came to you, but I presume you have to build up a certain level of trust and let these people know you're serious and you're going to take their story seriously. Like, what was that initial meeting like? Well, you know, a lot of groundwork had been done by the exec producer on this, Rebecca mm -hmm. North. So she had been speaking to them for, for the two years and then when Bernie and I came on to direct, obviously we were introduced to Denise and Aaron. Um, and, you know, it takes time to build trust with people. They might be sold on or at least, you know, signed up to a project. But certainly, you know, that's just the start of it because, you know, this story could be told in countless different ways. Mm. And so for Bernie and I, the most important thing was really just to spend time getting to know them. And we spent, you know, hours and hours and hours. Denise and Aaron gave up hours and hours and hours of their time talking to us on Zoom, telling us in forensic detail, you know, everything that had happened to, to them so that then, you know, we could think about the story, think about how best to tell it, understand what was important to them, understand what they wanted this series to feel like and for people, uh, you know, what they wanted people to take away from it and really honour the reason why they would go on camera and, you know, speak to an audience of millions about what happened to them. Yeah, it's funny you say that about the two years. Yesterday, I was doing something else on this radio station and the guy said to me, gosh, and this was for a 15 minute interview. And the guy said to me, gosh, people really don't get what's involved in even setting up a radio interview. And that's magnified a thousand percent in you know, making a movie or a documentary. We watch these things and your thing's about three hours long, but the groundwork People just don't get it. it's a lifetime to organize these things. I'm often struck by that. Yeah, it's a real labor of love, um, mm. which is why, you know, we have to be so selective when it comes to choosing what stories we are going to tell, because, mm -hmm. you know, we live and breathe those stories. You know, from start to finish, we were on this for about 18 months from when we mm -hmm. first kind of spoke to Denise and Aaron to then delivering the finished series to Netflix. Um, and it's just all we think about. It's all we talk about. Um, yeah. You know, the, there's a lot of travel. There's a lot of very late nights, a, very, a lot of very early mornings. So you've got really got to feel passionate about the story that you're telling. Mm -hmm. You know, and one of the one of the ways we kind of make those decisions is, you know, why are we telling this story? Quite apart from the fact that it's obviously a thrilling, twisty, turny tale that anyone would want to, you know, share in the pub. You know, what is what's the takeaway? You know, mm -hmm. what do we want people to be talking about after they've they've digested this thrilling story? What's mm -hmm. going to be resonating with them and landing with them? And there was just so many 
different themes to address in this one story because you know it's a story mm-hmm. in you know with three real parts to you know there's a home invasion there's an abduction and kidnap there's sexual assault you know you know any of those events on their own can stand up a documentary and we yeah. had all of them within this one story um so you know there's there's so much to talk about in terms of you know victims of sexual assaults you know, why women aren't believed. And there have been many, many conversations around that that we've witnessed in the media and online since, which has been very rewarding for us. But then also, you know, the the systems that we live within that we kind of are able to delude ourselves are there to protect us and to serve us. And actually sometimes they're they're the villain of the story. So, you know, looking at that as well and looking at making, you know, this, you know, since kind of, 2015 since making a murderer kind of start at this whole kind yeah. of deluge of true crime doc and everyone becoming this armchair detective kind of playing into that a little bit as well and the true crime tropes and you know challenging the viewers at home who think that they are detectives and they are lawyers and they they do know what's happened and just making everyone just kind of take a breath and think about our own kind of internalized prejudices and everything else so there was just so it was such a rich story quite apart from the top line of what actually happened, Mm -hmm. what it represents about the undercurrents of society that we live in. So, yeah, there was a lot for us to get our teeth into. Sure. And just on that, I was going to ask you anyway, but and either of you can answer this, but is there a moral bind you sometimes find yourself in with a story like this, particularly this, that you want to make something that people are going to talk about in the pub? Like you guys are making documentaries that you want people to see. So there has to be entertainment is the wrong word, but there has to be a gripping story here. Yet at the same time, you are dealing particularly in Denise's case, with, you know, the worst imaginable thing that ever could possibly happen to a woman or or any human being. It, it must be a fine line at times. Totally. It, I mean, it's the has been an incredibly hard line for us to walk. Um, and, you know, there is no part of us that wanted to kind of use anything from the story of what happened as a sort of an exploitative crutch. Uh, you know, particularly with Denise's story, we wanted to be, you know, as sensitive as we possibly could. And that's not just in what ends up on screen and what people end up seeing. It's how we work with contributors as, who are as vulnerable as Denise throughout the process as well. You know, for instance, when we were interviewing her, we interviewed her for three days. She was actually six months pregnant at the time. And so you have to be really, really careful. We had a closed set so that it was just Bernie, myself, and the cinematographer that that were in her, um, you know, that she could see. Um, And, you know, you take lots and lots of breaks because obviously reliving and telling a story like this is really hard. Yeah. Um, But, you know, I think that with Denise, she wanted her story to be told. She wanted for people to sit through and hear her talk about her experience and what happened to her because ultimately that's exactly what she told the police and they didn't believe her. Mm. So for this, there was a reason to go into her highly sensitive experience. And, you know, the, the, the thought that from, from Bernie, from myself, from the rest of the team that then went into, well, you know, what do we show of that to viewers? Cause obviously there's no footage, there's no archive, mm. um, you know, was, was really difficult to get to get right and to know that we were doing the right thing and you know Denise and Aaron saw the series before it came out so you know we had them to lean on to sort of Mm -hmm. let us know how they how they felt about it and that's 
the most important thing for us at the end of the day is you know for the for the contributors to feel especially in situations like this to feel like their story has been told in a responsible impactful way now, I was just going to say, in terms of the, the you know the entertainment side of it you know Denise and I knew that this was going to be going on Netflix you know this isn't yeah. Panorama this isn't a Dateline sure. or 2020 they know that what the what appears on Netflix there has to be a narrative arc to it and yeah. they also knew from watching the Tinder Swindler that Fliss and I we make films and and, and we tell stories in a way that's kind of as, as close to a movie as possible, really, so that people are enticed to sit down and watch it um, without feeling like they're being lectured or, you know, being, having their Friday night a bit ruined. You know, it's kind of, it's that Trojan horse approach, really, to, yeah. to, to telling a story. So it's like, yeah, you're coming in and, yeah, there's, there's all of the kind of the headlines of this are extremely titillating and everyone's excited about what is clearly going to be a roller coaster of a story. But you know, what they're learning through the course of that is perhaps more subtle and, and more nuanced so that so that everybody gets to feel that they've they've got the experience that they want out of it. So the viewer gets to feel that they've had, you know, and I understand your struggle to use the words entertainment because, you know, it's the same kind of struggle that we've had with sure. these that we hope people enjoy it. I mean, it's not yeah, something no, that should be I enjoyed, know, know. Yeah. but, you know, it's hard to kind of find the words when you're looking at, you know, Friday night entertainment. Yeah. But, you know, not only do, do do people get to have that thrilling twisty turny cliffhanger series, but Denise and Aaron are also able to watch it. And, you know, they're not naive to that. They knew that what was yeah. going to be happening if it was coming to Netflix. But they yeah. also get to finish the series and say, yeah, but we got to say the things that we wanted to say and we got to highlight the issues that we wanted to highlight. So everybody, mm. everybody wins, really. Yeah, absolutely. And Trojan Horse is, is a very good analogy. And I'm very keen in even describing it that I don't give certain things away because it's an important journey to go on. And also in your defense, the most impactful moments in this outside of any dramatization or whatever, for me, is when we hear Denise describing what happened to her. Tell me this, you know, I'm a man, clearly. I have children, boys and girls. So, you know, I have a I hope a new nuanced view of gender the older I get. But I can't help think just about everyone who does bad things in this is a man. Like the people who come to this with their prejudices about what happened are all men. Uh, there's a journalist who runs off in a wrong direction. He's a man. And like, you know, and I'd say that out of no whatever you want to call it, wokeism or preaching to the crowd or whatever, but it does seem, and also in the Tindler swindler, you know, that we need to teach men to be nicer to women. Like that comes across in both your documentaries. But what's your take on that? Unfortunately, you know, it is the case that most rapes happen to women by men. Yeah, I know. Most murders happen to women by men. Yeah. Most police officers are men. So it's kind of, we can only work with the, the yeah. systems that, that we have and certainly if we ever get an opportunity to highlight good men we will take it yeah uh, it's okay. just that we've we've struggled a little with the last couple of stories that's all yeah no no and that that that's completely fair enough talking of uh the last stories the tindler swindler that went titanic in a way i i have you guys been surprised by the life that has had yeah um it was real <laughs> it was a real shock we really you know Bernie and I said oh do you think it will get to number one on Netflix and just then for one day maybe <laughs> just for one day <laughs> and then obviously it just blew up 
to, you know beyond our wildest imaginations and you know and it's so rewarding because obviously we you know we talked about how long it takes to make these shows how much time and effort it, yeah. it and so for people to sit and watch it and then to you know praise it is 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 what it's all about really you know and to make an impact and to start conversations and so you know tinder was just so brilliant and you know we we were sort of we talked to netflix and you know they they just before it came out and you know we talked about how you know this is a story that's told from the point of view of three women three victims whose first language isn't english you don't have to perpetrate her in it so you know, if it doesn't do as well as we hope, you know, don't don't be disappointed. Yeah. But I think, that, you know, that gave Bernie and I just real confidence that these crime stories don't don't have to involve the perpetrator. And certainly yeah. with American Nightmare, we left him out. Mm-hmm. We put in the bare minimum. And actually, you know, these extraordinary stories are fascinating, told from the point of view the people you know uh, of the people that it that it happens to so that was clearly a deliberate choice in terms of the perpetrator if people want to find out about him they can google him i guess right yeah tell me this um finally i, I told netflix 10 minutes and we're coming up in 16 so i have a reputation for this but finally clearly i'm a fan uh, we spoke for tindler swindler what's what's next or can you say we, 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 yeah, we, we're just looking at the moment, to be honest with okay. you. We've started our own production company called Ladywell Films. Um, so Ladywell? Yeah. Okay. okay. It was, it's a neighbourhood in London that we both live in as well. So yeah, 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 it, yeah. Just seemed, it seemed to fit. It's a Trojan horse. <laughs> <laughs> we swear we don't hate men. It's not that. It's just oh, no, it, I know, it, I know. it all went together. Um, yeah. So we're just developing a slate at the moment. So, you know, okay. we're obviously very attracted to these kind of holy shit stories. Yes. Um, but yes. they don't have to be true crime. Um, you know, un- unfortunately, the world that we live in is true crime is the gift that keeps giving. Yeah. Um, but, you know, we're also really open to extraordinary love stories or funny stories mm-hmm. or, you know, you know, poignant historical moment stories. It's just that the last couple have been true crime, but also... We're also not only looking at female centric stories. You know, what we want to do is build a stable of talent that we can nurture and, and kind of helm. But we want to tell lots of different stories from many different perspectives and really have sure. it as diverse a slate as we can. Well, look, for now, American Nightmare is great. And ladies and gentlemen should watch it because it's a, it's great for you. And lovely to talk to you again, guys. Thanks a million. Thanks, Thanks so much. Cheers. We're taken into what seems like an interrogation room. There's an FBI agent with us. And this officer sits down in front of me and he introduces himself as Detective Mustard. Our goal when this thing started was to see you come home safe. And um, I'm glad that you survived um, this incident. And ultimately what we're chasing is the truth. They just held a press conference last night saying that I'm lying. And so I'm immediately just kind of on guard but at the same time, I know that I desperately want to show them the truth and show them that they can believe me. A clip there from American Nightmare, which is on Netflix. And you heard me talking before that to its creators, its makers, Bernadette Higgins and Felicity Morris. Up next, another great week at the cinema, I'm pleased to say. We review American fiction. 
Now you're listening to Screen Time News Talks TV and Movie Show. Now, another big new release of the week is American Fiction, the Jeffrey Wright movie that has seen him garner an Oscar nomination and it's also nominated for Best Picture and indeed Best Supporting Actor. It's a fascinating movie, which I have seen, but more importantly, film critic, film buff, film connoisseur, Esther McCarthy has as well. Esther, hello, how are you? Hi, John. How are you? I'm a little bit in love with this film, so I am. It's that's a it's a really pleasant surprise as one of the last movies for Best Picture in the Oscar race, isn't it? Absolutely. And I think this is one of the last few I hadn't seen as well. And I was also pleasantly surprised. But it is a kind of certainly a serious topic, even though it's comedic in lots of ways. Give listeners a sense of what it's about. Yeah, it's um it's Jeffrey Wright, the great Jeffrey Wright in leading man role. Uh, can we have more of it, please? Uh, he is playing this character by the name of Thelonious Monk Ellison. M- Thelonious Monk, do you get it? So jazz fans will like that reference straight away. Um, he's a successful writer who nevertheless has kind of found that mainstream success has kind of eluded him, I suppose. And, you know, we've seen the character of the frustrated writer many times on screen over the years, and, and he's the latest one of them. Um, to say it, he's frustrated is a bit of an understatement, though, because not only does he feel the baggage of, of kind of slightly unrealized ambition, uh, but he really is out of step with the modern world of publishing, I think is a fair way of putting it. Um, he's a black writer, very middle class, well off, but he's always resisted these efforts in the publishing industry to tell his stories through the prism of race. Um, and over as the years have gone on, he's kind of found himself out of fashion then because other writers have le- leaned into that um, quite blatantly in some cases to fulfill the needs of a of a, the, a, the needs and demands of a growing market. So that's really interesting. Um, he decides to kick against all this in a very humorous and quite puerile, childish way, uh, but no less funny for that. He decides to send his publisher a spoof manuscript in a pen name, uh, talking about his background, inventing these fictional details, such as the fact that he's a you know, working class black man who is a fugitive from the law. Uh, it's quite an outlandish and trashy uh, story that he sends, thinking nobody will take it seriously and he'll just get some you know, aggression and frustration off his chest, but to his horror and glee, uh, simultaneously, I suppose, the book starts to take off. Indeed it does. And in tandem with that, we also have a perfectly realised, I would say, family dynamic story there as well, where he's back visiting with his mother and his wayward, let's say, slightly wayward brother played by Sterling K. Brown. I found that aspect of it very pleasing and and well handled. I thought it was well handled and I think it brought the film, it elevated the film from being a mere satire, albeit a really good one, to grounding it in this really strong family drama and telling you about his own personal circumstances and making you believe, I think, that he would write the the crazy book that he wrote. Um, The reasons being, you know, they're from a well-off family, but there's not much, you know, cash flow running around. His his brother is a bit of, uh, you know... tricky character who's got him into trouble over the years and hasn't really shown up in terms of supporting um, their mother who, you know, is cared for. She's, you know, she's going through um, dementia, I think. She's on the early paths to it, but it's pretty obvious as you get to know her character. 
and her, his brother, his sister and her daughter has been looking after her. But very early in the film, not a spoiler, really happens in the first 20 minutes. Um, the daughter dies suddenly, leaving these two very different brothers kind of wringing their hands and wondering what to do with their with their mom. And I suppose the, you know, the, the reality for an awful lot of Irish families will be how expensive good nursing care is for people you love who are getting older. And that really incentivizes them, I think, to writing the book and to going along with the crazy market demand for the story that he thinks is worthless and silly. Yeah. yeah. So they're the two strands of the stories. What did you like about this so much? It made me laugh more frequently than any screenplay I've uh, watched in a long time. A long mm. time. It reminded me a little of the writings of Charlie Kaufman or even of Woody Allen in places. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, you know, that he's he's delightful in the lead role, Jeffrey Wright. He is this kind of grumpy, curmudgeon-y, I suppose you call him a black Paul Giamatti uh, thing going on, <laughs> you know, in, in reference to the holdovers very recently. And he's just... He's out of odds with the world in the funniest kind of ways. And I just think that screenplay sings. Um, it's a, a guy by the name of Cord Jefferson, a first time filmmaker, would you believe mm. it? But who has a background in TV writing. And I think that's very evident here. Um, it's also an adaptation of, a, of a, a book I wasn't familiar with by Percival Everett um, from 2001 called Erasure. Uh, though I do think it kind of takes, you know, leave of that it's not a straightforward adaptation i just really like this for its originality it felt i know i'm going to sound really old john but it felt like the movie that they don't make like they used to you know that really heavy talky you know character driven dialogue heavy uh kind of filmmaking that i have always loved and when the screenplay sings like this one does I mean, I, I had a dozen or more laughs out of this. I thought it was very, very funny and yeah. on the nose in its satire. And, you know, I suppose when you're watching it as a viewer who's not from the culture that it's satiring, there is a little bit of, and I think the filmmakers know this and they're toying with me. Um, there is a little bit of, should I be laughing at this bit or shouldn't I? Yeah. And I think that actually feeds into the whole point of the film in a deconstructive but really, really, really interesting way. Yeah. And what's you the Woody Allen analogy is interesting because there were times Woody Allen movies made me howl out laughing loudly with very clever jokes. And this is very clever. And the, the best bits in it, I think, are his complete dismay that this book is being such a hit and the role he may have to inhabit in order to get it across the line and promote it. Like they are real, you know. If you were eating soup, you might spit your soup out of your mouth. I don't know why oh, I say that. So but funny. The laughs are absolutely hilarious. Absolutely. And the way he leans into it eventually and starts to play this character yeah. who he's told has is a fugitive from the law, you know, which is a you know, the the booksellers are wetting themselves at the prospect of him having a criminal record. Like it's it gets the deal over the line for them. So the yeah. satire in here is spot on as well of the industry, I think. I think if you're in you know, if you're involved in marketing or anything like that, uh, in the arts, I think you have great fun with this. Yeah, and, and you're right. Like the satire, the whole point of it is that it make a point, but it also has to be really funny. And in that case, this is perfect, perfect satire. And there is a brief kind of romantic plot where he he, he meets a neighbour of his mother's, where his mother's staying in this beach house, uh, played by Issa Rae. Uh, she's terrific in it. 
she's fabulous in it. I think she's the conscience of the film. I think she's she's yeah. almost the viewer in a way, you know, she's the one who calls him out. Um, they have this lovely little romance. She's a bit of a fan of his work and she's quite a confident woman. So he's not shy about kind of asking him out, even though she's going through a divorce herself. Um, but she kind of calls him out in the end when all of this chaos that he's brought into his life threatens to upend him and when all of the personal problems he's having with the experiences of his mother um, as well threaten to upend him I think she is the one who kind of goes hang on a second here what's going on here um, and I think she is the viewer in that regard because you are going how 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 far are they going to push this you know how crazy is yeah. this going to get and she's kind of uh, channeling that I think but she's really good Actually, yeah. the the cast are not perfect in it. I thought everyone was fab. Well, I yeah, got- I was just I was just going to say Sterling K. Brown is he's always great, but he's particularly good as the you know the the wayward brother. Even though he probably might know more than Jeffrey Wright's character in some sense. What did you think of him? Yeah, he he is a, like ostensibly the near do well brother, but you're not ever certain of what he's going to do in the sense that sometimes he really comes to the right conclusions on stuff and sometimes he hits the nail on the head but you know there's so much madness around him that that's kind of quite fitful so I think it's a really well-drawn character in the sense that he's not just the near-do-well he's not merely a black sheep he is a character who's genuinely you don't know what he's going to throw up next you know and that that makes him really interesting I think yeah. Well, it has been a great few weeks for movies, from all of us strangers to the holdovers. There have been some gems lately. I'm sensing you think this is a bit of a gem. So what would you be saying stars-wise? I think it's a bit of a gem. I'm I'm hovering between four and five stars. And I suppose the reason I'm not quite... I think I'm at four stars with this one, John, just because I wasn't sure how I felt about the ending of it. Mm. I think it's a it's a film... It's a film that's kind of troubled and seeking its own ending ultimately. Um, <laughs> is the two hours before that a riot? It absolutely is. Um, and I, I haven't been able to come up with a better idea for an ending, uh, failed <laughs> screenwriter that I am. So there is that, you know, and I can't go into why it didn't quite tie with me, but I just felt um, I'm not quite sure how I felt about the ending. What did you think about it? Well, I, I'm in complete agreement with you. And I was thinking four and a half stars, but the ending did, it, it sold it a bit short, I felt, and we can't go into it. But let's just say, you know, we weren't sure how it should end. And you kind of got the impression the filmmakers weren't either. But that is the only uh, damp squib I would have. And I agree with you that the two preceding hours were just delightful uh, from start to finish clever funny satirical warm sweet heartfelt on the money you know everything you want from a movie really a deserved best picture um, nominee I think very much so very much so you know I was watching the um, nominees being called out live to the audience and let me say the cheer that went up when it got a Best Picture nom and the cheer that went up when Jeffrey Wright got a Best Actor nomination has me thinking, could we see a couple of surprises at this year's Oscars? Oh, that's interesting. I didn't watch them live, but uh, maybe I should have. Yes. It well, was look, interesting. Yeah. I yeah, mean, he, I can imagine. he's in a leading role again. Like I almost forgot he played the artist Basquiat uh, almost 30 years ago. Wow, and, uh, that's a long time ago. That's a long time ago. And, you know, more leading roles for Jeffrey Wright, please. Yes, he is Mr. Dependable in an ensemble cast, but my gosh, is he capable of carrying a film as well? 
Well said, well said. I interviewed him for Batman, which he was very good in, but he was, you know, in the background slightly, Commissioner Gordon. Not yeah. the bat, but he's very much the bat in this, if this isn't, if that isn't a terrible analogy. So that's four stars for the great American fiction from myself, but more importantly, from Esther McCarthy. Thanks, Esther. Thanks, John. Excuse me, uh, Ned, do you have any books by the writer Thelonious Ellison? Yeah, uh, this way. Here you go. Right. Yeah. Wait a minute. Why, why are these books here? I'm not sure. I would imagine that this author, Ellison, is black. That's me. Ellison. Yeah. He is me, and he and I are black. Oh, bingo. No, no bingo, Ned. These books have nothing to do with African-American studies. They're just literature. The, the blackest thing about this one is the ink. I don't decide what sections the books go in, and no one here does. That's how chain stores work. Right. And you don't make the rules. A clip there from American fiction. Jeffrey Wright. He's brilliant in it. He really is. Uh, he's curmudgeonly, but... His heart is in the right place a lot of the time. It's a great watch. It really is. And one for your cinema viewing. And I was talking to film reviewer there, Esther McCarthy. Up next, a great new Irish movie, Double Blind. Now you're welcome back to Screen Time News Talks TV and Movie Show. Now in cinemas next week is a new Irish movie, Double Blind, which tells the story of seven people who arrive at a remote medical facility to take part in a clinical drug trial. All of them are young and broke, doing it for the money. The trial is supposed to be a kind of run of the mill, but after the first night, they experience some strange effects. And by the fourth night, having not slept, they come to realise something rather deadly, that if they are to fall asleep, they will die. That's the premise of this unusual and indeed pretty scary at times feature debut from Ian Hunt Duffy. I should also mention that The facility goes into lockdown and then there's a pretty scary 24 hours. Uh, A young lady who's a bit lost in her own life, Claire, becomes somewhat the reluctant leader of this raggle-taggle group of people. And she's played greatly by Millie Brady. Uh, As I say, Double Blind's the first feature-length feature by Ian Hunt Duffy, whose previous short movie, Gridlock, was Oscar longlisted and won a staggering 60-plus awards on the festival circus a few years. Festival Circus? Circuit. There might be a Freudian slip in there. And Ian Hunt Duffy joins me in studio now. Ian, how are you? I'm good. Thanks very much for having me, John. Not at all. My pleasure. Now, tell me this. You know, I know you do you co-wrote it in, in part or because I read two different things. Uh, no, so we the screenwriter is Derek McGargle. In uh, his entirety. In his entirety, yeah. Okay. Um, but I work closely with Derek. We went to film school together. Right. Uh, he wrote my short films, and this is our feature first feature film together. But um, myself and the producer, Simon, we will be you know heavily involved in sure. each draft, giving input and, and, and notes. That was the sense I got. And then, so, you know, drug trials, there's a lot about them these days, and there's all sorts of issues about what harm they do to animals, what harm they do to people, all that sorts of thing. It's a rich vein for a filmmaker to look at drug trials, though, I guess. 
Yeah, no, it was something we were excited about. And, uh, you know, a, a lot of people have come up to us actually since with like, oh, I know someone who did a drug trial. Or there's a lot of urban myths about drug trials. And mm. I think even with COVID as well, um, there's a whole new awareness about pharmaceutical companies with the vaccines and, and the kind of the drug trial process yes. as such. So uh, this was actually due to go into production in 2020 originally, but because of COVID, everything shut down and then we were delayed until 2022. So it actually took on a whole new oh, resonance wow. as a result. Yeah, And the atmosphere of the movie is literally one of lockdown because the facility they're in locks down. So that must have been a weird life imitating art. Yeah, because we, yeah, we had the term lockdown in our script, as I said, in 2020, and it's taken on a whole new meaning since, yeah. since then. So... Yeah, um, you look, if people want to take new relevance out of it, that it's a COVID movie, that we'll, we'll, we'll take it, you know. You'll so. take anything. It <laughs> will exactly. help get people. So it's a very interesting story. And what I like about it is it's a horror, but maybe it isn't. And I don't want to give too much away. But is, is that a fair assessment? Uh, in what sense, though? though you know, because there are things that happen in it that are horror, mm-hmm. or they could just be psychological. We're oh, not actually sure if there's a supernatural element to this. But you tell me, you're the filmmaker. No, look, I don't want to spoil anything either. <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, I would say it's a horror slash thriller, you know, maybe a, a psychological horror uh, thriller. Um, there's a lot of suspense and tension. And yes, there are some horror elements, some, some jump scares and, you know, a lot of atmosphere and there is a lot. Of, there is a lot of atmosphere in it as well. Millie Brady plays the kind of reluctant leader of the group yeah. who realises the SH1T is hitting the fan <laughs> and they're going to have to do something about this how did she come to you? So we had a brilliant casting director on board the film called Amy Rowan mm-hmm. and we, look we spent months and months uh, trying to cast this film because it's an ensemble piece there's a lot of there's like seven characters as you said mm-hmm. uh, so there was a lot of work and effort put into finding you know, the, the individual characters like everyone so they have their own unique personality and voice and stand out but we, we focused on Claire first the protagonist and uh, yeah as I said it was a long search but once we saw Millie's work um, she was in The Last Kingdom which yeah. is a Netflix show uh, and I met with Millie then we had a, a lovely conversation about the film and the character and she was just really excited about it so th- yeah once we got Millie on board we then built out the ensemble the rest of the cast mm. out from there you know? And there's a doctor preceding all events, and mm. that's Pollyanna McIntosh, who's kind of a, a favourite of horror movie makers. Yeah, she's a bit of a horror icon, really. Yeah. Um, Remind people who she is and why she's a horror icon. So she was in a horror film called The Woman, uh, That was that's kind of a, a cult classic. Uh, she was in Exam, which is another kind of one-room thriller horror. Like this mm. was a UK film from a few years back. Um, she was in an Irish film called Let Us Pray, which was another horror film yeah. and then most notably I suppose people would know from The Walking Dead yes. and Vikings Valhalla um, and you know, she's coming back and the, the, there's a spin-off actually coming out next month for The Walking Dead The Ones Who yeah. Lived and Pollyanna's in that as well so yeah. I think fans of Walking Dead would know her Absolutely and as soon as you see her on screen you'll know exactly who she is and she, she has a horror presence even though she seems like a very present Oh lady. she's absolutely lovely yeah she's, yeah. A, she's a pleasure to work with yeah. So tell me this I'm always interested when someone who's been making short movies finally gets the keys to the kingdom <laughs> and makes their big one. So this is your first full-length feature film. Yeah. Was it was it hard? Oh yeah, it was very difficult. Um but you know, that's it was exciting as well as you said to be finally get that opportunity to feature. That's that was always the the goal. I think for me anyway, short films were 
the stepping stone towards mm. making that first feature. Um, and we were using our short films as sort of a blueprint towards the kind of tone and the style of yeah. film, the genre we wanted to work in uh, for our first feature films. So we were always trying to build towards Double Blind. And just the the ending, which I won't give away, but it gets very dramatic yeah. uh, it's it, not an action movie but towards the end it, it's full on for about 20 minutes of running around chaotically let's say right yeah was that it was that a big leap for you to film that amount of action um i, I suppose I was, we had there are some action scenes in gridlock you mentioned the short film you mm. mentioned but no i suppose this was this was my first time working with a stunt team a proper stunt team yeah. and choreographing fights or action sequences um but it was a lot of fun um these you know Myself and Derek um, were children of the 80s. We grew up on these kind of genre films, yeah. thrillers, John Carpenter, John McTiernan. I can see all James that James Cameron. Yeah, yeah, so all those influences come to the fore. And I think, you know, th- this was kind of a, a love letter to the, some, of that, some of those films. There's also, you have this weird thing where you're watching all these people trying not to fall asleep. Yeah. Uh, it's quite, you have that feel. it's like being on an airplane or something when you're trying to sleep or something. The idea of not falling asleep because your life literally depends on it. Millie and the cast, they do a great job at that kind of stay awake, stay awake vibe. Yeah, no, we did a lot of uh, research into you know, some of the physical and mental effects that comes with sleep deprivation. Mm. There's lots of studies out there. So we looked at like medical studies and we would talk about different physical uh, attributes they could do for each character. We went through the script even with a a 10 point sleepiness scale, you know, one to 10. And Mm. we would mark out scenes. This is where you are in the scale in this scene. And then also during uh, pre-production, I had our uh, my first child, so there was a lot uh-huh. of uh, <laughs> a lot of uh, research there into sleep deprivation, as I'm sure a lot of new parents will know. So yes, I hear that. Yeah. I hear that. Mine are no longer doing that, sleeping most of the night. But I hear that, and actually, that's kind of it. Reminded me a bit of that. The idea, go to sleep. I beg of you. Well, double blind. I nearly called it double bind. Double blind is directed by Ian Hunt Duffy. It is in cinemas from the 9th of February. That's next. Next Friday, it will certainly not put you to sleep, but it will keep you awake. So the very best of luck with it, Ian. Thanks so much, John. Thanks, man. No, 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 no. Stay awake, everyone. Stay awake. Whatever you do, don't go to sleep. Don't even close your eyes. Listen to me. If you fall asleep, you'll die. What? I saw our scans. This drug is... You saw our scans? I snuck into Dr. Burke's office. I... I knew something wasn't right. For the last four days, our brains have been pushed into overdrive and now they're shutting down. What do you mean shut down? How does a brain go into overdrive? What do you mean? When you're asleep, your brain is still active. What you're feeling now is your brain trying to shut itself down. The drug is... Are you telling us we're going to die? No. No, not if we stay awake. We just need to stay awake until we can get out of here and get help. A clip there from Double Blind, which is in cinemas next weekend, next Friday, the 9th of February. Very good movie. Uh, And you heard a little bit of the music there at the end. Real creepy music in it, like 1980s music. You know, that weird sci-fi. Maybe it's not the 80s, but strange sci-fi music in it. I really enjoyed it. Double Blind in cinemas from the 9th of February. And you heard me talking to its director, Ian Hunt. 
Duffy. That is it for this week. What's on the show next week? All sorts of stuff. You'll have to tune in to find out. I do actually know. I'm just not sure what's going on. There's a couple of things in the air, as there will be in the coming weeks, including an interview with Ray Winston, which I did yesterday, which I'll be bringing to you in due course. That is it for this week. My thanks to Anne-Marie Kane, who helped out on the show. You can get in touch with me any stage. John underscore Fardy is my Twitter handle. Or you can email me screentime at newstalk.com. I'll just remind you this show is available as a podcast every Friday at 5 p.m. on newstalk.com or the Newstalk app powered by Go Loud. And it's on the radio every Saturday at 6 p.m. on Saturday. It's also repeated on Sunday evenings at 8 p.m. Enjoy the remainder of this bank holiday weekend. Have a safe week ahead and I'll talk to you next week.